One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked up the place of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both, both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Right, okay. Well, I've called this talk Food for Thought. You might have got that as one of the themes that runs through this whole bit, food. Um, the setting is a meal. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee for lunch. Uh, on a Saturday, as it happens, and Jesus keeps talking about meals, doesn't he? He's using the idea of a meal to teach us. But um, this is more than just good advice for the dinner table, and we're alerted to that by a little word in verse 7. Now glance down and tell me which word in there shows us that there is more to these stories than meets the eye. Last word? Parable, yeah. Okay, so... That means there's a deeper meaning here about the kingdom of God. It's not just, uh, deep, it's not just superficial advice about humility, although there are, is something for us to learn from that. Now, what could that be? Well, let's keep with the theme of food. And if we went back to verse 29, we'd see that Jesus has already been talking about a feast. He says, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And that uh, feast comes back into the picture a little bit later on. Um, we're looking at the events that take place in this Pharisee's house over lunch, over two weeks. So I'll be doing the first bit, and next week uh, Seth will be taking us through the next bit. And one of the things Seth will be speaking about is verse 15. Somebody at the table chirps up, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So we've got this uh, theme of food and feasting running through. And in terms of the kingdom of God, this is talking about the time when life has come to an end and either we are saved and we join the great feast in God's kingdom. I don't know if that's metaphorical or if that's real. We join the great feast or we're lost and we're thrown out of the great feast. And within the wider structure of Luke, we see that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem here. And as he goes, the way Luke structures it is around three questions. 
And the third of those is uh, in verse 22, sorry, 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? In other words, are only a few people going to be at this feast? And will most of us find that actually, having tried to get there, we don't get in? So this is food for thought, because it's all to do with the question, will you make it to that feast? And today, Jesus levels a warning at a particular type of person, which is the, top, the type of person who jostles to be on the, high ground, on the, the moral high ground, okay? And often at the expense of others who are deemed less worthy. So maybe I should call this sermon jostling for the moral high ground, but that seems a bit less catchy. It's a kind of a aggressive self-righteousness. Now, here we go. Jostling for the moral high ground in Jesus' time. This is what the Pharisees were doing. We all know about the Pharisees. They were the ones who liked to be seen as the ones who had got it right. They uh, had the, the moral high ground. The Pharisees had a very strict interpretation of the law, and they kept it meticulously. And they thought they were making God very happy by their upright conduct. That's the Pharisees. What about jostling for the moral high ground today? Because we don't really have Pharisees in the same way today as they did back then. Uh, in the UK, it's popular not to believe in God, and so not many people are jostling for God's approval. But I think we can all agree that it's as fashionable as ever to hold the moral high ground, isn't it? Now, controversial ground here. Um, I'm going to give you some examples of times where people have jostled recently over the moral high ground. And... I think as soon as I give these examples, you'll see that it's not black and white because often, well, in all of these cases, they are causes where we would say, yeah, that's a good cause to be standing up for or against. And yet still, so often people are doing it not so much for the cause itself, but to, to jostle a little bit. So earlier this week, a newspaper headline quoting Boris Johnson called the Russian attack on a children's hospital depraved. Depraved. And maybe it is. I'm not minimizing it. But it is slightly forgetful that not long ago, tens of thousands of civilians were killed in the Iraq war when the West invaded. And although Boris could say that he didn't support that, and in fact he wanted Tony Blair to go to prison for it, that is not quite the same as acknowledging that what Russia has just done, the West have done not that long before. We've, we've jostled for the high ground a bit there. There's been public anger recently over climate change and people's irresponsible actions, particularly governments and companies' irresponsible actions, damaging the environment. There's public anger against injustice, such as Black Lives Matter. And um, so I can hear, you know, if I said, if I just said, um, it shows that we're jostling for the moral high ground uh, by the fact that the Black Lives Matter situation happened, somebody will immediately say to me, so are you saying it's okay to be racist? And uh, no, of course I'm not. All of these are good things for us to be standing up against or, or for some things. But what it does show is that there's a lot of jostling for the moral high ground going on. A new phrase that's been added to my vocabulary in the last few years is virtue signaling. Is that in your vocabulary now as well? Virtue signaling is where you publicly stand up for a cause just for show just to show people how great you are. You don't really meet up to the expectations of the cause, but 
you like people to think that you do. So the existence of virtue signaling proves the point that it's fashionable to have the moral high ground. And the anger that's displayed against virtue signaling shows indignation that someone should take the, high mor the moral high ground when they're not entitled to, because somebody else is entitled to have the moral high ground. You see what I mean? So the only point I'm making here is that um, all over this country, people are jostling with each other for the moral high ground in exactly the same way as the Pharisees were. And the jostling doesn't always come from a place of love because we put others down in the process. Those who are less eligible, less deserving, less worthy, and um, maybe they're just virtue signaling, but I'm actually a very moral person. So you can see um, this kind of self-righteousness is relational. It affects our relationship with others. These are the themes that will come out in our reading today. So let's have a look at the problem with jostling. The basic problem with this kind of jostling is that we're so busy keeping up with the Joneses morally that we neglect the needs that God has placed on our doorstep. And that's basically what our reading is about. So here's the structure. This is Luke 14. First of all, we had this miracle where Jesus healed a man with a swelling. And then we've got three stories. We'll be looking at two this week, and then the third, which is a bit longer, next week. So here we go. These are little verses uh, from within those. We're going to look at each of the top three things in turn, the miracle, story one, and story two, and see how they all fit together and how the point that Jesus is making is really one underlying point. So let's have a look at the miracle first of all. This is um, absolutely masterful storytelling by Luke because he brings out the facts of the conversation without having to spell them out for us. Now, for just... 30 seconds in uh, the groups where you are. Take a look at verse 3 and the first few words of verse 4. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And just list for me how many facts we glean from that little conversation, Jesus' words and then the response, um, that spells out the situation for us. So have a quick chat. What do those verses tell us? Okay, wrap up those conversations there. <clears throat> I can hear all sorts of deep conversations going on, which is really great. All I was thinking of, actually, was some superficial facts that we get from these verses. But I like it that you've gone straight into the details. So what kind of things do we learn from these verses? Just verses three and four. Tell me about the conversations you were having. Interesting in keeping the detail. Um, and yet the fact that they remain silent shows a level of embarrassment because if they say, uh, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then Jesus will say, well, why did you criticize me for doing it before? If they say no, then that looks very heartless and not representing the, the God of the Bible, who, who is not heartless because here they've got an ill person in front of them and it's God's heart to heal people like that. So we get all of these things uh, from those verses. They're jostling uh, for the moral high ground. And this is part of their jostling. That's why they can't answer Jesus, because they don't want egg on their face having to admit that they were wrong. They want to have that moral high ground. And so from what happens next, we learn two big lessons about what it means to jostle for the high ground and 
the effect it has. The first is this. As Jeff has pointed out, having double standards shows that we're jostling for the high ground. They may well have pulled their son or their ox out of a, a ditch on the Sabbath day, but they wouldn't want to heal this man. They've got double standards. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this doesn't mean we just turn a blind eye to evil, but instead it means having eyes open to the evil in our own lives and around us and mourning that evil and working sincerely to address it. Condemning evil in others is not an end in itself to make us feel better. So evil should make us sad, not smug. We shouldn't have double standards. And secondly, when we jostle for the moral high ground, this is the second thing we learn from all of this, somebody else is going to suffer as a result of that. To protect their holiness, or so-called holiness, the Pharisees were prepared to let this man suffer at least one more day. Isn't that awful? And, of course, it's difficult to see this in ourselves. We would never say that we were self-righteous and therefore we're causing other people to suffer. Nobody would. The Pharisees wouldn't have done. Do you remember the prayer of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18? It says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. In other words, I'm not self-indulgent. I fast twice a week, and I'm generous with my money. I give a tenth of all I have. If you pointed the finger at that Pharisee and said, your self-righteousness is hurting others, he would have denied it. And yet, we have the evidence in this miracle right in front of us that self-righteousness damages other people. Now, yeah. Yeah, go on. Yep. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's all nonsense. Yeah. It's a, it's a false gospel. So they had this double standard all the time by the sounds of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Um, I'd love to have kind of given a bit more thought as to, the, to these two points and really honed in on how it affects our lives today. I ran out of time. I'm sorry about that. But what we can do is, here's our, here's our application, okay? Let's pray to God to open our eyes to the ways we might be hurting people by our own self-righteousness. Because the last thing we want in a sermon about self-righteousness, and it feels self-righteous even preaching about self-righteousness, so I apologize. But the last thing we want is to come away from this talk and point the finger at other people and say, look how self-righteous they are, okay? So let's pray to God to open our eyes to our own hearts. Let's move on to look at the first story. This is the story where Jesus said, you're going to a wedding, and um, 
don't sit down at, in the place of honor. Sit in the, the least honorable place so that the host comes to you and says, sit in a better place. So good advice, generally. If we, uh, if we sort of promote ourselves, then somebody better than us comes along and uh, we're embarrassed. But um, yeah, there's this kingdom meaning underlying it as well. Now, the, <laughs> I suppose the difficult thing is you, we look at the miracle and we say, okay, so Jesus healed this man who was sick. Um, and then he moves straight on to talking about a wedding feast where people were sitting in different places of honor. How do the two tie together? And it really comes down to this. For the Pharisees who were jostling for their, their moral high ground, the message they needed to hear was, the host of the wedding decides where you sit, not you. Don't jostle for that place of honor because the host will come and say, no, I've, I've reserved that for somebody else. And we understand the picture, don't we? Because it could be the same in a wedding today. If I was a work colleague of someone getting married, I wouldn't go and sit in the front row. That would be for the family. So it's a great illustration for our own time as well. So no one earns their way into heaven. It's by God's grace through faith that we receive that honor and not through anything we do so that no one can boast. That's what we read, isn't it? Nobody can say, I got into heaven because I did X, Y, and Z. So it's an insult to God to assume we get to heaven under our own steam and live like we're on the moral high ground all the time, jostling for that, that top place. That's an insult to God. Ultimately, and I'm mixing biblical metaphors a bit, somebody said, there is no entry through the narrow door for the one who is laden with status symbols and a sense of their own importance. This is the message that Jesus is teaching these Pharisees who felt they were so holy that they didn't want to taint their holiness by allowing somebody to be healed on the Sabbath day. There is no entry through the narrow door for such as this. Now, that is a warning to us. But once we've received that and we're happy to acknowledge God's grace and mercy and our salvation and not our own goodness, that's actually very liberating. It gives us permission in, in a world where we are, so many people are jostling for the moral high ground. And, you know, we're accused at every hand of getting something wrong. It's, it gives us permission to say things like, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about this particular issue. And somebody might accuse you, well, how can you not know about this? This is a big social justice issue of our time. But we're not saved by our knowledge of current popular moral standards or particular moral issues. We should know about them, of course, and we should care about them. But we are saved by the host who decides where we shall sit at the feast. It's by his grace. We are not saved by knowing about the current moral issues and by uh, publicly standing up for or against something just because it's fashionable. So we are saved by grace. Gives us permission to be self-forgetful. Let's move quickly on to the, the next story. Jesus has addressed the issue of people jostling for the high ground and said that's not acceptable because the host decides where you sit. And then he moves on. This isn't really so much of a parable, actually. He just gives a bit of teaching to the host uh, who has invited him to lunch. And the, the lesson he wants to bring out here is act in love, not self-interest. Because if we're jostling for the moral high ground, it's hurting other people. But instead, we're to act in love. 
So, let me remind you what happened. Jesus said to the host, when you give a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might, may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, this is where that little fact comes in that um, I identified from verses 3 and 4. Um, who was invited to this lunch? The Pharisees and the experts in the law, yeah. So this Pharisee had invited the elite and Jesus. And it must have been quite embarrassing for Jesus to say this to him at the lunch where he's sitting around all of these elite. Um, when you throw a lunch, don't invite people like this, you know, invite um, these others. So, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, the lesson is that God's mercy and love should throw out, flow out of us to others. We don't need to put other people down to maintain our status on the moral high ground. Quite the opposite. We can serve others. Here's another quote. Somebody said, if I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need his grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. Let me read that again. If I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need his grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. This Pharisee, I don't know if you noticed, had invited all of the elite. And if you look down at uh, verse 4, when Jesus has healed the man, does the man sit down at lunch with all of the others? No. Jesus sends him away. So this ill man was not a guest at the lunch. Maybe this Pharisee thought, I have worked so hard to achieve this status, this moral perfection, and look, I'm surrounded by people who have also done that. But we don't want this man who's ill bringing the tone down. It's awful, isn't it? The ill man wasn't a guest at the dinner, but in Jesus' version of righteousness, he should have been. Next week, we'll come on to the parable where Jesus steps it up a level and gives the people present an ultimatum. Because not only are they uh, sort of jostling for the moral high ground and putting other people down in the process, but that has got to such an extreme level that they are totally blind to who Jesus is and they're rejecting him. And to give you a sneaky peek of what's going to happen next week, Jesus says, a king throws a dinner and invites lots of people and they all say, no, we can't come. And he's saying, Pharisees, look what you've done to yourselves. You've pushed yourselves out of the kingdom of heaven. So let me return to that question at the beginning. The question we all need to ask ourselves is, will you make it to the great feast in the kingdom of heaven? Will you be among the saved or will you be among the lost? And sadly, the answer is that if we find ourselves jostling for the moral high ground, the answer is we probably won't make it to that feast. The door will be shut. But if instead we acknowledge that we need God's mercy, we're sinners, we're no better than anyone else. We need Jesus' forgiveness through his death on the cross, and we trust in God's kindness alone to give us a place in that feast. 
then we can be saved. That is the gospel, isn't it? Let me wrap all of this up. The Pharisees' self-righteousness at the expense of others comes out particularly clearly when we zoom out to see the bigger picture. We've seen it in the detail. You know, they're jostling for the high ground. There's a, a guy who needs to be healed. They don't want him to be healed. Jesus tells them these stories to show what they should have done instead. But Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in the bigger picture. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be hung on a cross, which, according to the law, makes him cursed. So all the while, the Pharisees were so concerned about their purity under the law and their holiness, the one who is truly righteous was willing to go to the ultimate depths that the law had to offer and become cursed, not for himself, but for others. Compare that, you know, the Pharisees don't want this guy healed because it would take their moral purity. Jesus takes a curse on himself by dying on the cross so that everybody else who believes in him can be morally pure, can be holy, can be righteous, and have that righteousness imputed to them. Can you see the difference? True righteousness, the righteousness of God, gives itself up for others. And what a beautiful thing that the God that we serve, the true righteousness of God, doesn't rub people's noses in the dust to show his own righteousness. That's not how God works. He lifts people up from the dust to share in his righteousness when they really don't deserve it. Complete contrast. So let me finish with that thought and let's close in prayer. Lord God, just as the Pharisees were, we are um, quite frighteningly blind to our own self-righteousness. We pray for your mercy to open our eyes to see where we are self-righteousness and where that might be hurting others. And we praise you for your righteousness and how that shows itself in the sacrifice of Jesus for the sake of others. Oh, may, may we accept that sacrifice. May we uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be saved purely by his grace and not through our own works. Amen.